Our Father, we're living in an age of we're living in an age that's fake. We're living in an age where things are manufactured. We are living in an age where we are being sold uh, constantly lies that are disguised as truth. We are lied to constantly. There is much deception. So this is why we are thankful that we have your word and we can study your word. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We thank you that you are the God who cannot lie. It's impossible for you to lie. That's why in Psalm 119 it says, the sum of thy word is truth. When we take your entire book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it all adds up, all of it, to truth. Because it's from you, it's God-breathed. It's your word to us. We can count on it. You make promises. You keep them. You tell us the truth about life. You tell us the best way to live. You offer us your wisdom. You offer us your counsel. You let us know that you'll never leave us or forsake us. You let us know that when we're confused, that you will make known to us the path of life. All these things are true. The fact is, we need you. The, the fact is, we've all tried to live on our own skill and our own truth and our own wisdom. And we all ran off the road and into a ditch and turn the vehicle over. So we are grateful that you are there. We're grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful for your stability. And when we listen to you, we become stable. Not up and down, but stable. We become steady. We become sober. We become sound thinkers in an age where sound thinking is rare. And this is because of you and your work in our lives. So again tonight as we look into your word, instruct us, give us clarity where there is so much confusion. We, we are living not only in evil times, but in confused times. Thank you for a sure word from you that we can follow and that we can pass on to our children and to our grandchildren, even as they are confused by the lies. Help us as men who are following you to be stabilizing forces in our homes and in our families because we've been stabilized by you and your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we're continuing through our study on the Ten Commandments. We have been camped out for a number of weeks on the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That covers a multitude of subjects because when you talk about adultery, and we've mentioned this many, many times, the purpose of this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, that is in Exodus chapter 20, the purpose of this commandment is to protect marriage because God has made marriage the cornerstone, the building block of human society and human culture. I think it's safe to say that we have watched in our country and in others, the family come under attack. The family as God designed it. The family comes under attack. Well, we, we, we have an enemy. And Ephesians 6 tells us that those of us who follow Christ have an enemy. Um, Satan is the God of this world. He is not equal to God. He is a created being. He is an angel. But he makes war against the people of God, and in his insanity, he is trying to still rebel against God. But as Martin Luther said, uh, the devil is God's devil. He's, uh, he's on a chain, he's on a leash, he can only go so far. He does not have unbridled power. Uh, he's on a chain, he's on a leash. He had to ask permission to afflict Job, and God put boundaries on him, and he could not pass those boundaries without permission from the Father. But he is active, and a third of the angels fell with him. So Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the principalities. Uh, there are angelic beings, and a friend of mine was speaking at a conference with another Christian speaker, and this particular Christian speaker spent a lot of time at the White House during a certain administration. And this Christian speaker told my friend, as they were having a conversation, he said, the greatest sense of demonic oppression I ever feel is when I'm in the White House. Now, that makes sense, especially if you knew the administration that he was involved with. But there are spiritual forces. Satan is in rebellion to the living God. And as we look over the past years, we have seen a change in our country. There's no doubt that our country originally had Christian roots. We had a foundation that was based not in the Koran or in some Eastern book of mysticism of Confucius or the Lao Tzu or somebody else. Uh, we, you find scripture everywhere in Washington, D.C. to this day. 
The Ten Commandments are chiseled in marble at the Supreme Court. But as the years have gone by, we have left those principles. Uh, they used to be the standard, but the nation continues to unravel because we continue to rebel against God's commands, against God's moral law. So that has consequences, and it has consequences on families. It has consequences on individuals. Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery was an interesting character. Uh, I read, oh, in the last few years, uh, a biography, his autobiography, and then I skimmed a biography, and he was, um, he, he, he had strong opinions. He, he was extremely disciplined, he was a leader. As a lot of military leaders, he thought, um, he thought pretty highly of himself. He had, a, he had skirmishes with uh, Patton. You can imagine those two guys going at it. That would have been interesting. Uh, he didn't get along with Eisenhower. He uh, thought he should have been the Allied commander instead of Eisenhower. Uh, nevertheless, but he was a, he was a brilliant man. He served as a platoon commander in World War I. And then he really hit a stride in World War II. In his autobiography, he had a chapter called Between the Wars. In his memoirs that he wrote after his retirement in 58, those memoirs caused a furor because he refused to pull his punches. Montgomery spent some time documenting that for various reasons during the 20-year gap between World War I and World War II, many mediocre officers were somehow promoted to the top positions, while some of the most effective and proven officers were passed over. Uh, and, and he documents all of this. He, uh, and just to get the dates down, World War I commenced on July 28, 1914, and came to an end on November 11, 1918. Okay? World War II was declared on September 1, 1939, and ceased on September 2, 1945. 1945. The two years, even though roughly 20 years apart, could not have been more different. World War I saw soldiers still fighting on horseback. In World War II, it was tanks and bombers. World War I was slow and tedious. World War II was fast and furious. Hitler's Blitzkrieg. Uh, they would fight for months and months and years over the same territory in World War I and never move out of those trenches. That was the thing that really brought about the, in Churchill's mind, him and a few other guys started thinking, we, we, we got to stop this stalemate, and that's how Churchill came up with the idea of a tank. And I don't think that came out until about 1919 at the end of World War I. 
But the technology changed between World War I and World War II so that instead of holding on the ground and being in trenches for months and months and months, Hitler did this blitzkrieg thing and he would take countries in days. So there was a tremendous change in 20, 25 years. Um, so there were, there were technological changes, but Montgomery really nailed the leadership issue. And going back to that paragraph, he said, many mediocre officers were somehow promoted to the top position between the two wars, while some of the most effective and proven officers were passed over. In Montgomery's opinion, this development caused a crisis that threatened the very survival of England and to use Churchill's term, Christian civilization. As a result of these changes in leadership between World War I and World War II, Montgomery described the crisis that resulted, he said this, the result of all this was that the army, army entered the Second World War in 1939 admirably or, ad, admirably organized and equipped to fight the 1914 war and with the wrong officers at the top. One more time. The result of all this was that the army entered the Second World War in 1939 admirably organized and equipped to fight the 1914 war and with the wrong officers at the top. You, you know, uh, there's, there's always been rebellion. James says, why are there wars and disputes among you? Because you lust and you don't have. Individuals lust and don't have. When rulers lust and don't have, you go to war. Uh, ultimately, you break it down to sin. And the sin that's in every man's heart. So there has always been rebellion since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and were tempted by the devil. Uh, Spiritual warfare is nothing new. Warfare among nations is nothing new. The rise and fall of nations is nothing new. Nothing new. Because these unseen forces have always been at work. But if you look at our country, you have to say that there was a tremendous, we've talked in recent weeks about the unraveling of our culture. Um, there was a, in the 60s, and a lot of historians point to 1968 as the year which destabilized the United States. And some of you guys remember 1968. You were young bucks in 1968. And there was a moral and spiritual earthquake that shook this country to the core. And we've never been the same since. Usually when there's an earthquake, there are aftershocks. But the aftershocks are uh, diminish in terms of their intensity. With what's happened in our culture, in our nation, yeah, there was an earthquake in 68 that shook us to the core, but the aftershocks don't diminish, they get stronger. We continue to get shaken and we unravel. This uh, shouldn't surprise us. I mentioned that I'm doing this revision on 
the first book I ever did, Point Man, that I did back in 1990. And the subtitle of Point Man was How a Man Can Lead a Family. As I'm doing the revision, uh, I'm enjoying it, working on it, studying different things. But uh, I'm, doing up, I'm doing updates because you see, um, it's 30 years later when this update will come out. I wrote it in 90 and the update will come out in 2020. Uh, in a sense, what I'm doing is sort of uh, dealing with what's happened between the wars. There was a war going on in 1990. There was a war on the family, there's no doubt about it. But it has intensified and it has changed and we are dealing with stuff we never thought we'd be dealing with. But we're dealing with it. I have mentioned to you before a book by John Dickerson, a young pastor um, who is very insightful about where we are going in this country and what is happening. Dickerson's book is called The Hope of Nations, Standing Strong in a Post-Truth, Post-Christian World. Hope of Nations, Standing Strong in a Post-Truth, After-Truth, Post-Christian World, After-Christian World. There is no longer a Christian consensus in this country like there was. So Dickerson writes this, the post-truth shift of American culture is underway and this shift will bring with it tangible and difficult consequences for our neighbors, our children, and our grandchildren. Every year, the experts at Oxford Dictionaries pick a word of the year. Recently, they chose post-truth as the single word that best summarizes American and European culture right now. They noted that our society now defines truth by feelings rather than facts. Western society was once founded on truth, but it is now moved beyond it. So contrast that with what Montgomery said. What Montgomery said between the wars, now our army is equipped as we enter World War II and organized to fight with vigor the War of 1914. They were behind the times. We cannot afford to be the, behind the times. Uh, quite frankly, that's why I'm doing the revision on Point Man. The basic principles are biblical and they still stand. But I didn't deal with certain issues because the issues weren't on the radar. So now we've got to equip young fathers. These issues are on the front burner. How do I deal with those? The war has changed. We have the same enemy, but the battlefield has changed. And interesting, isn't it, that the fundamental shift is that we've gone from a truth-based culture to a, to a feeling culture. This is really the shift we've got to get in our minds. Everything that is unraveling around us now is because there is no objective truth it's all based on feelings. 
So all of these crazy discussions are going on. They just come, every day there's something new. The latest one I've heard is, <clears throat> let's get rid of the Electoral College. Well, if you went to school back when they taught something called political science or civics, you would study the Constitution. Now, I don't think they do that in public school anymore. It, it is a, uh, it's offensive. It, it, it is uh, reprehensible. But if you, there was a reason we studied the documents and they would explain to you why the founders came up with an electoral college. There, there's a reason that Texas has two senators and so does Rhode Island. The King's Ranch is bigger than Rhode Island. Why did they do that? There was a reason for it, which we won't go into now. This isn't civics class and it's not political science. But you see, the reasons don't matter. They just don't like it. It hurts their feelings. Everything is based on how you feel. In John 8, 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So there are principles in scripture that influenced the founding fathers of this country When someone suggests a new law, oftentimes you'll hear the response, well, you're just trying to legislate morality. Every law is legislating somebody's morality. The question is whose morality is being legislated? It's interesting that for 200 years, people made and most of us in this room, if not all of us, we had ancestors that sacrificed and sacrificed in order to get to this country. And they knew it was going to cost them, and they knew that they would not see their dreams realized in their lifetime, but they did it for their kids and they did it for their grandkids. Because there was an opportunity here and there were freedoms here that were nowhere else. And because there were laws, as they made their way here, they had to go through a process. And there was order and there was law. Some were accepted, most. Some were turned away. But you see, in our times, Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, you just hold on and keep studying your Bible <laughs> and, and trust the Lord. That's what you do. Um, you don't panic. You don't freak out. But you just realize the times in which we live. The men of Issachar, one of the tribes of Israel, 
2 Chronicles 12, verse 32, the sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Those guys had two things. They had discernment. They understood the times. They looked at what was going around in their, in their lives, in their culture. They looked at it through the lens of the word of God, through God's perspective. They understood it from God's perspective. And they knew what Israel should do. So God, if we'll ask him for wisdom, he'll help us to understand, and then he'll give us the next step. He'll always give you the next step if you'll ask him. That's a comfort. So in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So the truth of the Old and New Testament played, had a large influence in the founding documents of this country. There's no dispute about that. Now, look at John 8, 44. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and he's real straight with them. Because they're denying who he is, they're rejecting who he is. And in 844, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Watch this. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of liars. When people are told a lie and they believe a lie, it destroys their lives. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth shall set you free. You believe the lies of Satan. I don't even believe in Satan. Well, he got you, didn't he? As C.S. Lewis said, he doesn't care if he, you believe in him or not. That doesn't bother him. He just doesn't want you believing the truth of the word of God. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, his truth, and the truth shall set you free. You believe the lies of the enemy and you'll be enslaved and will destroy your life forever. So the lies that we're being taught right now in our culture about God, about truth, about knowledge, uh, basically we have, we have an educational system that is absolutely atheistic to its core. Utterly atheistic. You know that's true, I know it's true. There are exceptions, but that is the party line. And if you stand up, there are going to be consequences. And you'll be suppressed. That is the perspective of the government. It's the perspective of just about everything. It's a secular culture. A secular culture believes this is the only world that there is. Jesus said there's another world. Why am I going into all this? I'm going into all of it because we are studying the commandment that says you shall not commit adultery, which is designed to protect marriage. We have gotten so far away from the standards of God. And again, you can go back to the 60s, around 68, because that's when revolution started. And that's when 
political revolution, all kinds of revolution. But that's when the sexual revolution started for sure. By the way, revolution, revolutions don't always show their true colors in the beginning. In the early 60s at University of California at Berkeley, there was something called the free speech movement. And the same students that signed on to that are now political leaders who suppress free speech. You see, because they believe a lie. They don't believe truth. The truth of Jesus will set you free. Satanic lies will enslave. And there are no liberties and there are no freedoms. The freedom they want is sexual freedom and sexual anarchy. And there's no restraint. And so we find ourselves now dealing with things that were, quite frankly, unthinkable. Just... 10 years ago, even five years ago, we, 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 we see things unraveling so quickly. It's astonishing. So tonight, we want to go back to God's standard. You shall not commit adultery. That's a protection of marriage. What is marriage? Well, God invented marriage. It's all in Genesis. So let's turn to Genesis 127. Now, some of this is a little bit of review from previous weeks, but this stuff is all tied together. God created the world. He created people. He, cre he created the whole thing. And, of course, we say, oh, no, he, he didn't create it. Yeah, he did. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. When you see a sunset... That's the paintbrush of God. And every night is, it's, it's unique. Every night is distinct. In Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 30 years ago when I wrote Point Man, I did have a chapter called How to Raise Masculine Sons and Feminine Daughters because there was a trend and you could, always see it, you could already see it coming. Uh, you could see... Well, here's what, I, here's what our culture wants because um, the enemy's behind it. Our culture, and you could, you could begin to see it back in the 80s. The culture wants men to be feminized and women to be masculine. As the young boy said to his father after watching a Michael Jackson video on MTV, Daddy, is he a boy or a girl? So see, the seeds of it were back there in the 80s, but it wasn't on the front burner, not by any stretch of the imagination. God created only two genders, male and female. Genesis 127. Male and female, he created them. 
God created man and woman in his image, yet they are different, radically different. I didn't want to get bogged down tonight in too much detail, but Wayne Grudem in his book, Christian Ethics, and I've mentioned this before, which is based on the Ten Commandments. So his chapter on you shall not commit adultery is over 190 pages long at the section, not the chapter. And he breaks that down into you shall not commit adultery. So he's got a chapter on adultery. And then he has a chapter on marriage because adultery is the two shall be quant shall become one, and it's the breaking of the marriage covenant. So he's got a chapter on marriage. And then he's got a chapter on divorce because of the hardness of our heart. Um, and then he's got a chapter on pornography because pornography is the major pathway, gateway to adultery. The majority of pornographic downloads are done by kids between 12 and 17, the vast majority of them. He's got a chapter on gender. He's got a chapter on transgenderism. Uh, the points I'm giving you are basically Grudem's points. On the second point, God created man and woman in his image, yet they are different. He goes into, uh, he quotes some different scientists who have done um, studies on the biological and physiological differences between men and women. And they're into the hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Now, we've always known that men and women are different. When God made male and female in his image, the man and woman correspond to each other. They're both made in the image of God. None of the other, animals are not made in God's image. But men and women are. Uh, we can be creative, we can think, we can ponder our existence, we can, we can do things the animals can't do. We're made in God's image. We're equal. Now, the world says that men and women are equal. But God says, has always said, men and women are equal, but God says they're different. Our world is trying really, really hard, <laughs> despite facts, that men and women are equal, but they are the same. And they are not the same. Martina Navratilova has gotten in trouble recently. And she is part of the gay community. But she has gotten in trouble because she's gotten bothered by the fact that some guy who's 6'3", and you know, 210, can suddenly declare himself a woman and start playing women tournaments and winning them. And she actually had the temerity to come out and say, that's not right. Well, now she's in trouble. Is it not astonishing? 
she's in trouble because that's offensive. And you see it in, 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 in athletics. You see these, uh, these boy wrestlers that are mediocre. So what do they do? They declare themselves, I'm, I'm an actuality, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a female. And so they start wrestling girls. And they're stronger physiologically. You can be the same height as your wife and the same weight and you have 40% more muscle mass because God made us different. But in our times, we're insane. Number three, God intends that a person's gender identity should be determined by that person's biological sex. 20 years ago, there was no gender identity other than male and female. Nobody ever talked about it. Now it's on the front burner. Now it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. So John Stone Street, I'll quote John again, his excellent book, A Practical Guide to Culture that he wrote with Brett Kunkel. Uh, he has, they have a chapter on gender. Jill Soloway, director of Amazon's award-winning online television series, Transparent, which is a show about an older father coming out trans to his adult children, claims, in a few years, we're going to look back and say, when we were little, we used to think that all women had vaginas and all men had penises. But now, of course, we know that's not true. These people are dead serious. This is what happens when you leave, when you leave the foundation of God's truth. You throw reason away. Stone Street and Kunkel say, you may wonder how a biological fact can stop being true. Yes, I would wonder that. According to Soloway and the culture, we'll just make it so. We will no longer construct the terms male and female the traditional way. Instead, we'll give them new meanings or get rid of them altogether. A video that went viral on YouTube illustrates the absurdities of this claim about gender identity. Joseph Backholm, president of the Family Policy Institute of Washington, <clears throat> asked students on the University of Washington campus about their views on gender identity and public restroom policy. At first, the students affirmed the right of every individual to choose the bathroom that corresponded to their perceived gender. Backholm followed up with a series of questions designed to show the resulting absurdities. First question. If I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Number two, if I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? Number three, if I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? If I told you, told you that I am six feet five inches tall, what would you say? 
Amazingly, the vast majority of student interviewees were unwilling to say that back home wasn't anything he claimed to be. They wouldn't, they wouldn't disagree. One particular student's answer sums up the response. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six feet five, I feel I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. Here's the rub. Joseph Backholm is a five foot nine inch white guy. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, why were seemingly bright young college students unwilling to counter obvious absurdities? And the reason is, they were consistent intellectually. Who am I to say that you can't identify as a stalk of broccoli? <laughs> no, uh, 20 years ago, late 80s, I was in a doctoral class at Dallas Seminary and John Hanna is a great, great teacher. Guys, anything, he, he, he would teach a course on basket weaving. I'd sign up. John's just a great teacher, knows the word. But he was doing a PhD. And uh, in philosophy. And at the time, the animal rights movement was starting to take off. And John wrote a paper on vegetable rights. And he and he just he just wrote it. He just took he just took the fundamental assertions and applied it to vegetables. Why not? And you see, that was twenty-five years ago and it was tongue in cheek, and everybody knew it was tongue in cheek, but today it's serious. I have a friend named Walt Heyer who um, I've told you about. Walt was one of the first guys in the United States to, and he had a, a deep struggle because of how he was raised, his grandmother. Uh, he stayed a lot with her. She was constantly dressing him up in little girl's clothes, constantly, telling him how beautiful he was. He really was a little girl, his little, her little granddaughter. And, you know, his, his parents didn't know that was going on. When they found out, they weren't pleased. And, uh, and he, she just kept treating him like he was a girl as a little boy. And he got confused. And when his dad found out about it, his dad got angry. And, and his dad was kind of distant. And his dad, got, his dad actually not only got angry at the grandmother, he got angry at little Walt. And instead of talking to his son and, you know, teaching him and giving him instruction and embracing him and he didn't, he got angry. So Walt always had these feelings inside because he was confused because he had been given the wrong, uh, he hadn't been given God's truth, he had been given a lie. So he went and had the uh, transgender surgery and the whole thing and almost uh, took his own life. 
And what was in that, I can't remember how many years, I want to say seven, eight years. And then through a, quite an amazing story, he came to know Christ. And so Walt, who, who was Laura when he walked into my brother's church, and was Laura for two years. Then he went in and talked to my brother, Jeff. And he said, I got to, I need to tell you something. My name is not really Laura, it's Walt. And, uh, and that began a process. And, Josh, and Jeff said, well, hey, glad you're here. Well, how, what do we do about this? Jeff said, you got me. But let's just, we'll just walk through it together. Because everybody in this church is broken and everybody's messed up and we all got our issues. We're all just trusting the Lord. And uh, so Walt, I had dinner with Walt, a lunch about two months ago. He and his wife were in town. Yeah, he's married. And uh, by the way, he, when, he, when he declared himself a woman, state of California just immediately said, sure. Changed his driver's license. When he said, forget that, I'm Walt, I'm a man, he couldn't get them to change his driver's license for years and years and years. Just recently, he finally got it done. Why would that be? Walt's ministry um, he, he fights, uh, he's 75, he fights off uh, cancer of the esophagus, he has trouble swallowing, he's up a lot because he has trouble sleeping. But uh, the Lord gives him strength and basically he is uh, constantly on the phone or emailing folks who struggle with this transgender concept all over the world, and the vast majority of them are contemplating suicide. Article today in the Christian Headlines online by Michael Faust, former transgender teens say it was the right thing to do uh, for women who formerly identified as transgendered men are speaking out, saying influence from social media and friends led them to transition as teens. Uh, and they all say I was very confused about life. And it seemed to be the thing to do, and it seemed to be a solution. There is a, a girl who's online, a girl who became a guy and then realized she'd made a horrible mistake. But at the age of 13, she'd had a, a double mastectomy. And she has had all of these different, and she has a five o'clock shadow. She's now 19 or 20. She does YouTube videos telling kids, don't do this. Don't do this. I believed a lie. I believed a lie. One of the things that I've got to address in this revision of Point Man is I had a chapter in there called how to tell your kids what you don't want to tell them, which is talking to your kids about sex. <laughs> it 
that, that'll, make you, that'll make you break out in a cold sweat. But they're going to find it out somewhere. And that's your job. You're the dad. I think God's plan is that fathers teach their boys and moms teach their daughters. And there can be appropriate, you know, discussion between father and uh, daughter and son and mom. You understand that. But primarily, that's why God gives his dads and that's why God gives his moms. And it's the father's job. And the, majority, the fact of the matter is most guys did not learn about sex from their dads. Now, why would that be? Because their dads didn't learn about sex from their dads. And their dads didn't learn about sex from their dads. And their, see, stuff is passed on. So what has to happen as a spiritual leader, you're following Christ. If you look at Ephesians 6, 4, we have instructions, real practical instructions that are given uh, about the family in Ephesians 5 and then on in Ephesians 6. Uh, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers don't provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord um, or the nurture. Our, our job is to teach. Our job is to nurture um, as, as fathers. Uh, the book of Proverbs is a the opening chapters, you see all the time, my son, my son, my son, I think it's through chapter nine. My son, my son, my son, my son. It's a father teaching his son about life. <clears throat> it should be a father who teaches his son about the facts of life. Most of it, you know, we found out from a friend or found a magazine, you know, before there was anything online, there was no online. Uh, there was just back alleys with trash cans. But I wrote a chapter in there about how to tell your kids what you don't want to tell them, and I just kind of went through the story of when I told my son John about the facts of life, and he was seven, and the reason I did that is that you got to get to your, you got to get to your kids before their peers do. And each kid is different. But you see, what we do in America is that we rob children of their innocence early. With everything that is on TV or now online or what they can see, all this, it's just, it's just, it's evil. You got to get to them early. And then they need to know that if they ever have a question about sex, and I told John this, I said, if you ever had a question, I don't care what it is, you come and ask me and I'll tell you the truth. You don't need to ask your friends because your friends don't know what they're talking about. But I'll tell you the truth, you can ask me anything. And after we had that talk about, I don't know, two, three weeks later, we'd been to the grocery store and he went with me and we're, pulling bags out of the car. And I'm, I remember, I'm walking up to the front steps, and he's right behind me, and I got groceries in both hands. 
and, and we're just walking up and, you know, just buying groceries. And <clears throat> as I'm hitting those front steps, he goes, hey, Dad. And I said, yeah. He says, is sex fun? And I kind of stumbled. Because <laughs> where did that come from? And I just turned and looked at him. I said, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and he just smiled. And we just walked in and put the groceries away. You never know when one of my friends, when he explained that to his seven-year-old son, he's listening and he's listening and the kid's not saying a word and he's listening. And apparently he was thinking about him and his brother and his sister and finally he looked at his dad and he said, you mean to tell me you and mom have done that three times? <laughs> Which is very logical, is it not? He didn't know. The first time I found out about that, what was in my mind was, you mean my mom and dad do that? The second thing was, I don't think my pastor would do that. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Kids have got to be instructed on this stuff. I remember when I talked with John, I, uh, I mean, how do you get into this? And I was just looking, I was praying about the right time and all this, and I don't know, I went up, he was in his room, and I went up there, and I don't know, it was just the two of us, and everyone else was cleared out somewhere. And we're just talking in there, and I said, hey, John, let me ask you something. You ever wonder about, you ever, you ever think about sex? And he said, Dad, yeah, Dad, he goes, I, I know a little bit about sex. I said, you do? I said, what do you know? He says, I think the girl up the street sexted with some guy. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, do you know what that means? And he said, no. I said, well, John, I want to tell you what this means because it's, it's sex, oftentimes we talk about it and people, you get the idea that it's bad, but sex can be a very, very good thing. It's something that God invented. God came up with this. And God gave it to us. Now, when we use it differently than what God says, it's not good and people get hurt. And he's listening to me. And I'm thinking, okay, now where do I go next? And I look over there and I said, so, you know, you and Josh have bunk beds. He said, yeah. I said, mom and I don't have bunk beds. It's the best I could do. I said, I've always liked those ladders, but mom and I don't have a ladder. I mean, we just, we sleep in the same bed. He goes, yeah, yeah, you do, don't you? And I said, yeah. I said, well, let me tell you about sex. When a, the way God made men and women, boys and girls, he made us different, didn't he? Little boys have a penis. Use the right terms. Just use the right terms. God made little boys with a penis and little girls have a vagina. He, he said, yeah, I, I, I know about that, Dad. And I said, yeah, I know you do. But I said, let me tell you something that's really wild. 
When a daddy loves a mommy, you know, sometimes you've seen me like kissing mommy in the kitchen. And he said, yeah, that's gross, dad. <laughs> and you know, it's not gross. They love it. They really love that. Uh, I said, well, this is really wild. When a daddy kisses a mommy, what happens? Something happens to his penis. And it gets big. And there's this thing called an erection. And those eyes are about as big as two apples. Not his eyes, my eyes. I can't, I can't believe I'm telling this to a seven-year-old kid. But what am I going to do? Go down and drop him off at Planned Parenthood? They'll tell him. There are all kinds of people that want to tell my kids about this. And they're everywhere. They're in the schools. And they're starting in kindergarten. That's not their job. That's my job. And they're going to lie. My job is to tell the truth. I said, that's, that's really wild. He goes, yeah, that's wild, Dad. And I said, and then what happens? The mommy and daddy start loving on each other, and then they take all their clothes off. And they get naked. I mean, I've got his full and undivided attention. They get naked, and then they're kissing, and they're hugging. And then what happens at a certain point? The daddy, this is wild. This is unbelievable. The daddy puts his penis inside the mommy's vagina. He said, then what happens, Dad? Go ask your friends. <laughs> I didn't say that. He did say, then what happens, Dad? So I told him. <laughs> I'm telling you, I was sweating. But he didn't know I was sweating. Because he thinks I've got it all together. But I don't. And you don't either. You know, that was 31 years ago. If I was doing that today, that's not where I would start. And I wouldn't start at 7. I would start a little earlier because of what they're already pushing in kindergarten, in some public schools. And they may not be pushing it, but there's probably a kid in the class whose parents or parent is convinced that this child should determine, and you know, a child doesn't, really want to, that's a parent deal. No child is thinking, hmm, I think I'm gonna, that comes from somewhere, doesn't it? So see, I, if I had a five-year-old, before they went into a kindergarten, I would talk with them. And I would say, you know, I would just talk with them. Because you see, it's the responsibility of a father is to bring the light into the darkness. And the responsibility of a father, the responsibility of a man, when you say masculinity, what is that? 
It's responsibility. It's initiative. It's doing the right thing. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the importance with kids and when you, well, I mentioned Ricky Chillette in his video series on homosexuality. And you can read this in Stone Street and some other books as well. One of the things that comes up oftentimes with same-sex attraction, they talk about a lack in the home. They'll talk about a lack in a home. Male homosexuals will talk about a lack of three A's. Affirmation, affection, attention. Now, boys and girls need these things. But to those three A's, I would, I would add a fourth. I would address sexuality. And I do it early because of all this gender confusion and it's being pushed and it's being pushed and it's being pushed. Walt Heyer gets death threats all the time because of his books and because he is speaking and speaking of the dangers of this and is very outspoken in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has healed him as a man. He's hated. The, the world has lost its mind. This surgery and, and hormonal therapy is, that's an issue. They, they write prescriptions for these drugs and there's absolutely no scientific basis for it. Uh, Grudem has an entire section on the science. Uh, the, the leading psychiatrist in the world over the last 40 years on this issue at John Hopkins basically was assaulted by the mob and was forced to step down because he stood against the party line. So, you know, guys, we're living in times where, and what this does is this breaks people. It wounds them. It hurts them. And, and people that are struggling with this, we, we, my gosh, it should break our hearts. Do they need the love of Christ? Absolutely. But we have to, we have to for our families, we have to go on the offensive. And we have to take our role seriously as fathers. If, 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 um, if a father is absent and you're the grandfather with your daughter's permission, I mean, you got a boy, he needs a male presence in his life. I, I, I'm, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned I quoted the gentleman whose name is escaping me right now, and, and really the name is not that important. It's important what he said is that with the absence of fathers, there is a father hunger, and it has not been tied in together 
the absence of fathers and the father hunger with the rise of same-sex attraction for boys. Because you see, there is a genuine masculine um, connection that's very real that every little boy needs. And when it's absent, it's absent, it's distant, it makes sense that he's going to be susceptible to finding that somewhere else in the wrong place. So this is why you got those three A's. You affirm them. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We talked about sensitive boys. We talked about boys that are rough and tumble. You know, some boys are athletes. Some boys are more sensitive. They just want to read. They want to be quiet. It's okay. You, you, you just find out how God made them. And you encourage them. And you do stuff with them. And maybe you're a baseball guy and he's not. Maybe he wants to... Uh, my gosh, take a class in painting. Well, go get him an easel and do some, I mean, you know, some great painters in the world. Nothing wrong with that. But, but see, this is our job. What the enemy wants to do, the enemy wants to get a wedge in between you and your children. And we gotta keep our eyes peeled, guys. And nobody gets this right all the time, but we gotta work on this stuff. And we let them know, hey, some great painters, great men were painters, great men who love the Lord, guys who love music, David. You affirm how God has made them. We don't affirm sin, we affirm gifts. We, we give them affection. I was preaching for Chuck last year and I mentioned that my little grandsons, I kiss them right on the lips when they leave. They're, you know, they're little guys. No big deal, just give them a smooch right on the lips. Will I do that when they're 19? No. But when they're little guys, bye, Papa, bye, come here, come here, Lucas. And he runs over and jumps out, right there. See, there's a little father, hunger, there's affection, it goes down deep in his heart. That's healthy, it's clean, it's godly, it's right. It's a masculinity. And there's a tension, a tension. You look them right in the eye, right in the eye. You listen. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. So when someone's looking you right in the eye, they're listening. You see. And the same with our little girls. But to that... And these days of exceptional evil and confusion and lying and deceit, we get them ready for what's going to come. Good coaches prepare their teams for what they're going to face in the game. So you've got to scout out what they're going to deal with. They send out scouts and they come back Guys that play college, professional, they spend more time inside in the dark than they do outside in the light. What are they doing? They're looking at film. All right, we're playing these guys on Saturday. All right, you defensive guys, this is this formation. When you see 
That guy get in that slot and you see this, they win three plays. It's going to be either this or this or this. Why? They've scouted them. They know what they're going to face. Good coaches prepare them before they ever face it. That's what good fathers do. It's awfully quiet in here. And you know, don't ever forget, they don't know you're nervous. They think you got it all together. And you say, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. Well, join the club. But you got a father who's promised to give you wisdom. And in another context, he said to the disciples, don't worry when they put you up in front of the council. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It shall be given to you in this hour. And I think the same father, when we take that on, well, what if they ask me this? Or what if they ask me this? I think he'll be there. And it shall be given to you what you shall say in that hour. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your assurance. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we can teach these little kids as we talk to them the truth. There's just, God just made it with two ways. You're either a boy or you're a girl. And sometimes we feel differently, but that doesn't change what we are. God has determined what we are. And we just tell them the truth. That's all we do. We just tell them what's in Scripture. And then we tell them, little boys, we, we paint a vision that one day you're going to grow up and be a man and you're going to find a pretty lady like your mommy. And you're going to want to be with her and you're going to want to talk to her and you're going to want to spend time with her and you're going to want to marry her. And we cast that vision before it ever crosses their mind because it's godly and it's right and it's how you created the world. We're so fortunate and blessed to know you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.